a paper came out that showed that the success rate of a back fusion in workers' comp patients was about 22%. And I just stopped to go, look, I don't know exactly what to do, but I'm not going to keep doing this. Hello, ladies and gents. This is Brandon Olin, and welcome to another episode of the Duskbound Podcast, where I interview leading health and wellness professionals to answer the question, why does everybody feel 20 years older than they really are? You'd think people would be living forever with all the health advice that's flying around these days, but that is definitely not the case. If anything, this surplus of often conflicting information just serves to confuse people and makes them give up on their health goals. My aim is to simplify health for you which is why I created the free Duskbound Toolbox, an audio glossary full of explanations of aspects of biology that keep popping up here. You know that stuff that we were supposed to learn in high school biology but didn't really pay attention to? The Toolbox is going to cover that and a whole lot more. So if there's a great episode on how to get better restful sleep that you want to listen to, but you keep hearing talk about circadian rhythms and REM cycles that you don't understand... Just pop open the toolbox and listen to the mini episodes about those topics and bam, now it all makes sense. You'll also get weekly updates on episodes when they air, along with a heads up of which toolbox mini episodes you can listen to beforehand to make the interview that much clearer. So go to our website, duskbound.co slash toolbox to sign up. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mobility. Our goal here at the Duskbound Podcast is to give you the knowledge you need to stay healthy in our modern sedentary world, and mobility gives you the tools you need to get there. So if your butt's glued to a chair for 40 hours a week, or your eyes are killing you from the UV light assault they're getting from staring at screens all day, mobility's got you covered. Adjustable height standing desks, wrist rest, UV blocking glasses, they've got it all. So go to the website mobility.co, that's M-O-V-I-L-I-T-Y dot C-O, and use promo code DESKBOUND at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. My guest today is Dr. David Hanscom. David is a Seattle-based orthopedic spine surgeon and the author of the book Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. This was an incredible conversation as it ties into a problem I've spent a good chunk of time dealing with in my own life and I'm sure many of you have as well, namely chronic stress and anxiety and the negative effect that this has on your body. We cover a lot in this episode, including how suppressing stress can actually make it worse, how stress and chronic pain work hand in hand, creating a cycle that compounds the effects of each other how incredibly unsuccessful surgery is at resolving chronic pain. The numbers are honestly abysmal. It took me a minute to process it when he first told me, and we cover a whole bunch more. So with that, enjoy this fascinating interview that will help put you back in control of your pain with Dr. David Hanscom. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you for asking me. I'm I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very, very excited about this too. I actually, I received uh, your book on Friday. So 
three days ago, and uh, I had planned to just sort of skim through and try and understand the the concepts in a pretty good bit of depth. And it really just pulled me in, and I ended up taking pages and pages and pages of notes because a lot of this stuff uh, has some pretty direct applications to my own life as well. So could you give the listeners just uh, you know a summary of what it is that you do and your approach and what you help what problem you help people to solve, basically? Well, I'm a complex orthopedic spine surgeon. I've been practicing in Seattle for about 31 years. And so I was training spinal deformity, and I came out for about 10 years in my practice, really being aggressive doing surgery, because I really felt surgery was the right thing to do. But I had a fair number of patients not do well, and I couldn't understand why. Then I started asking around about the data. What's the data on these surgeries? Nobody could really tell me. And in 1993, a paper came out that showed that the success rate of a back fusion in workers' comp patients was about 22%. And I just stopped to go, look, I don't know exactly what to do, but I'm not going to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. So I quit doing spine fusions for, well, actually, I have never start, really started doing fusions again for back pain. But at the same time, I went into this extreme burnout starting around 1990, where I started developing extreme anxiety. And it came out of the blue. And I didn't become a major spine surgeon by having anxiety. I became a major spine surgeon by suppressing it. So I was a master of suppressing stress. I didn't honestly even know what anxiety was. But I started developing all these physical symptoms that I had no idea what was going on. I started to sweat. Skin rashes broke out. My feet started to burn. My ears began to ring. I developed neck pain, back pain. And all sorts of symptoms started showing up. But, of course, I just kept plowing ahead without any idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. Then by 1997, I fell off the cliff and developed extreme anxiety, couldn't sleep, major, major depression. All the other symptoms got way worse. And when your body is full of stress chemicals, what I didn't realize, that's the essence of chronic pain, because every organ system is bathed in adrenaline and cortisol, and it changes your body's functions. So each organ responds in its own way. So my book ends up not being around pain. It's about all sorts of other symptoms that are unpleasant. So there's over 30 symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system, and I had 16 of them at the same time. So I I had no way out of it. I would I call it the abyss in my book, and I was truly there. Getting this spot where I had no way out, and I of course my physician tried everything, and I got lucky in 2003 and came out of the hole. So I started. I still don't know what happened, and so I kept practicing medicine, doing my thing still doing surgery. I didn't quit during this period of time, even though I'm not sure why I didn't. Um, I was functioning as a surgeon, but I just couldn't really function as a person. So in 2011, I was listening to a lecture that I, by a friend of mine, Howard Schubert in Detroit, about chronic pain. And all of a sudden, he talked about the centralized nervous systems, all these symptoms that were occurring, and absolutely the whole thing started to make sense. So I wrote my first edition of the book, Back in Control, a a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain in 2012. Then I reissued it about a year ago. And I'm excited about the reissue because it's based on my experience. And I've been pretty much pain-free since 2003. And the neuroscience of the last five years is absolutely stunning, documenting what happens to the brain in chronic pain. And it's all completely explained. There's no mystery about this. And it's really clear what happens to the body when you're, when you're exposed to a sustained level of stress hormones. 
Yeah, there's a very interesting, excellent thing that you mentioned there, the fact that um, – or something that I came through my own research between the first edition of the book and this new one. The first edition was almost solely focused on back pain and lower back pain, whereas the new edition is focused more on chronic pain and sort of all sorts of pain in general. Is that correct? Right. It turns out, by the way, that anxiety is the pain and that, as you saw in the new book, that mental pain and physical pain – are the same thing. I'm not saying they're pretty much the same thing. They are the same thing because they go to the same part of the brain, same chemical response. And so what humans have, there's a research term for this called unpleasant repetitive thoughts. Thoughts create the same physical reactions that other physical threats do, unpleasant thoughts do. They call them URTs, repetitive, I'm sorry, unpleasant repetitive thoughts. And what happens, humans can't escape their thoughts. So you have this endless barrage of thoughts that continue throughout a lifetime, and for most people it starts breaking through somewhere between ages 30 to 50. This younger generation seems to have it breaking through a lot faster. But what happens, every human being is subjected to thoughts that that are not particularly pleasant, and then you experience them, experience them, and then they get worse as you get older. Then you try to suppress them, which is even worse. The research shows when you try to suppress thoughts, a bunch of things happen. One of them is there's a trampoline effect where the thoughts actually become stronger, mm-hmm. and become a lot stronger. The second thing is that it actually causes brain damage. When you suppress thoughts, it causes damage to the um, to the uh, hippocampus of the brain, which is the memory center. Then the third thing is, amongst many, there's a direct link between thought suppression and opioid abuse. So the bottom line is you can't escape your thoughts. So it looks like that this relentless progression of thoughts throughout your lifetime is what creates this chemical surge, which creates anxiety. So anxiety is just that chemical reaction to sustain unpleasant sensory input, whether it's, whether it's physical or mental. Then what happens when your body is full of this sustained adrenaline, it increases the conduction of the nerves by about double. So then you actually start feeling pain that you wouldn't ordinarily feel. So then you have the unpleasant thoughts, then you have the pain, then you can't sleep, and it starts piling on, and it's pretty desperate. The thing that's frustrating is that if we just were educated literally in preschool and first grade about how this works, that anxiety is simply a chemical reaction to the environment, neurochemical reaction to the environment, we would process it differently. The problem is unconscious reaction is a million times stronger than your conscious brain, Mm-hmm. So you can't do it by talking about it. You can't suppress it. You can't solve it. So there's ways of separating and redirecting and literally directing your nervous system to form a different set of neurons. So it's not very hard. And so, again, we try to combat this relentless anxiety with these rational means. With a million-to-one mismatch, we're screwed. So it turns out anxiety actually is the pain. Interesting. Yeah, there's something that you uh, mentioned there that really stuck out to me when I was reading the book, how you said the fact that uh, suppression, you know, thought suppression essentially does not work whatsoever. I remember, you know, this is some anecdote I probably heard in like a psych 101 class in university, but I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. Uh, the idea that if you tell somebody, don't think about elephants, what's the first thing they're going to think about? It's elephants. Right. If you tell your brain, don't think about this negative thing that just happened or this fight that I just had with my girlfriend or how my you know son came in after curfew, 
you can't just turn that part of your brain off. That's where it automatically goes. The, as you say, the unconscious is so much more powerful that you can't help but have those thoughts. Right. I mean, the scientists have actually counted sensory receptors, and the unconscious brain really is a million times stronger. I mean, as you're sitting there, you're unconsciously shifting in your chair, so you don't have pressure sores. Your eyes are constricting or dilating depending on the light. When you talk, of course, your jaw muscles are moving automatically to help you form words. All of that's unconscious. It's incredibly powerful. I mean, it's really miraculous all how all this works together. So what drives us, the nervous system, and then this chemical environment that if you have this chemical surge, you're going to do withdrawal avoidance activities. And it's the perverse. So the gift of human consciousness is that it gives us an evolutionary advantage so we can well, in some ways, we've, we're the top of the food chain because we can do things that allow us to create weapons that, you know, are more powerful than, than the largest animals, right? So from an evolutionary standpoint, the language and concepts and consciousness gave us a huge evolutionary advantage. But the problem is every animal has a survival response to physical threats, including us, but the animals don't have those thoughts like we do and concepts to escape from. So what happened in human evolution, somehow that part never really got solved. And I'm reading this over and over and over again in the neuroscience literature. The only goal of a human body is to survive. It's not designed to have a good time. Mm -hmm. It just isn't. So every second your brain scans the environment for danger or threat. And even if things are going well, I wrote a website post called your personal brain scanner that even it's a great day with your family, friends, relaxing. Your brain's going to go to something that happened at the office or a fellow coworker or something that's going wrong because your brain's supposed to do that. It's always scanning the environment for danger. So then you try to suppress it. As you pointed out, when you try not to think about pink elephants, they become way worse. But the research was done in 1987 out of Harvard. It's nicknamed White Bears, where they asked college students not to think about white bears, and of course they thought about thought about them more thought about them more. But what happened is a huge trampoline effect is that they thought about them a lot more. And so there's a tremendous increase in those thoughts that they're trying to suppress. And then what happens to professionals, I'll just talk about physicians for a second since that's my profession, but mm. you know, it's all professionals. I mean I think it's every human being has this, all of us work hard, we have all sorts of stresses, we're trying to deal with obstacles all the time. And then the only way we know how to deal with thoughts is that we either suffer with them, because what else do we do? We just put our head down and don't complain much. Mm -hmm. Sort of a mind over matter approach. That doesn't work. And then we suppress like crazy, which was my incredible, I use the word gift, tongue in cheek, because I could do it. I could do anything. And I just didn't have anxiety. I honestly didn't. Then the third thing, of course, is masking, which, you know, works while you're drinking or gambling or whatever you're doing, it actually works for a few minutes or a few hours. But the big picture, of course, masking behavior is pretty deadly. So whether you suffer, suppress, or mask your thoughts, you can't escape them. So then the other problem is, is that with the brain, whether it's the thoughts or physical pain or like ringing in your ears, whatever you want to call it, I mean, any one of these physical symptoms, is that you develop these patterns of neurological activity, I'm going to call them pathways, that become embedded in your brain. So it's like an athlete learning a skill is that once you have that skill in your brain, you can't get rid of it. 
So it turns out that chronic pain gets memorized pretty quickly because it comes in so fast. It's like riding a bicycle. That once you know how to ride a bicycle, you really cannot unlearn how to ride a bicycle. So those are permanent embedded pathways. And, of course, the most dramatic example of that is phantom limb pain, where people have an amputation of their arm or their leg. They not only feel the arm or the leg like it's still there, but they still feel the same pain they had before the surgery. And it's even worse because before the surgery, they could at least rub the leg or distract themselves a little bit, and now there's no leg to rub or touch. And it just drives people absolutely crazy. So that's a pretty profound example about how this programming works. But we're programmed by environment every millisecond, and then every millisecond thoughts are connected with physical sensations and vice versa. And so one of my personal goals or missions with my project is to eliminate the word mental health and physical health. They're just a unit response. They're totally connected. So when you have a rough day, rough week, your body chemistry changes dramatically, and you're going to have physical symptoms. If you're exposed to heat, cold, unpleasant situations, or whatever it is, and you feel badly, of course, that alters your mind. But the bottom line is you can't have an orchestra without a conductor, and you can't have a conductor without an orchestra. So they're just a unit. The body course is much more complex than that, is that every function in your body is directed by the nervous system and vice versa. It's a feedback loop. So really it's just a unit response and if, we want, if you want to use, use the word mental health, you have to use that term, really it has more of a profound effect on your, profound effect on your symptoms than, quote, physical, structural problems. Excellent. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to see how much research and knowledge has been coming out these past few years about, you know, the direct connection between the, you know, for, in this case, lack of a better phrase, mental health and physical health. Um, you know, many people for a long time felt that the physical did affect the mental. They would say, oh, um, I had a really rough day at work and I would go get a tough workout in the gym and I would feel a lot better. But, you know, what you're saying, what a lot of this research is showing us is that it also works in the opposite direction, that the way you think can affect your physical well-being and your essentially biology in a way. Well, let me rephrase that a little bit. It actually does. It has a very profound effect on your body because if you're perceiving a threat, I mean, animals don't have to do with their boss and their kids and acting out in school, et cetera, because they don't have those concepts. So they're simply avoiding physical danger and moving on. We have this endless barrage of thoughts that don't quit. They get the same chemical response. So stress by definition is a threat. Otherwise it wouldn't be stress, right? Mm -hmm. So every little stress, big stress, sustained stress creates that chemical reaction that Again, there's over 30 symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system that you can't escape. So you want the adrenaline to survive, but the sustained adrenaline exposure is what makes is what makes people sick. I mean, there's auto, autoimmune disorders because what happens the cortisol and adrenaline actually you know affect the immune system. Um, people get cancer because again an altered immune system. We do know that stress kills in general. They did a Harvard study, I think in the 50s where they gave a questionnaire to a cohort of, of senior males, and they measured their happiness, whether what their happiness level was when they graduated. Then they followed them for 30 years, which is a really long time, just simply followed their mortality rate. The mortality rate was 10 times higher in the group who was unhappy, 10 times. 
huge, huge difference in mortality rates. So the bottom line is sustained stress will kill you. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually recall coming across that, the, the men of Harvard study a few years ago, and it was interesting because at the time or, or not at the time, but in the opinion of the person who was writing an article about this study, they were saying that the biggest thing that was linked to people being very unhappy and not fulfilled in their life was those who uh, had serious drinking habits or were alcoholics. And they looked at that and said, oh, drinking is what's causing these people to be unhappy. But it sounds like these sorts of um, you know, anxiety-inducing situations, these problems in their life that cause them to feel negatively in this way might be the thing that's pushing them towards that bad habit in the first place. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. You know, that, no, that's dead on. Fascinating. Uh, nobody, nobody wants to become an alcoholic. Nobody wants to become a drug addict. And unfortunately, there's a bit of labeling in, in the medical profession, well, this person's, you know, addicted to drugs, they're a drug addict, et cetera. But once you put a label on anybody, you can't really see who they are anymore. In other words, why are they drinking? Why are they on drugs? But I, right now, 40% of my practice in Seattle is with people with infected spines, and over half of those are on people with IV drug use problems. So I, I deal with people all the time with major IV drug use, IV drug abuse problems, and it's the anxiety that tortures them. They just can't escape the anxiety. So what are they going to do? So, and none of them want to be addicts, of course, and the lives are destroyed beyond words, mm-hmm. and it's terrible. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to, um, if we can, dive a little bit deep into how this, um, you know, at a biological level affects people on, you know, the regular basis. So, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, at a very basic level, it sounds like what often happens is, and this could be induced by a serious injury that people then feel like is the source of their pain later on, even if that's not the case, uh, but something occurs and they sort of deal with repeated stress. Um, I assume oftentimes from a similar source or at a similar time of day, say, um, you know, a boss who is very mean to them. And then this frequent stressor keeps occurring and reoccurring. And it creates that, um, that primitive fight or flight response, the release of adrenaline and cortisol. And because the human body is programmed to avoid danger, right. it becomes more sensitive to that feeling because your body wants to not be in danger. So right. that uh, that stress response becomes more and more intense over time because your body's actually trying to tell you to stop going near that thing that is causing you stress. But if it's something in your life that is a constant that you can't avoid, then it's just going to create this loop of increased anxiety and increased stress, which is then going to cause this increased release of these chemicals and these hormones, which makes whatever pain you're feeling seem you know, magnitudes worse. Is that like a pretty basic description of how all this works? No, it's it's completely dead on. But let me explain this a little bit differently. So that's obvious. You have a boss that really is treating you badly. Unfortunately, there's a trend in the workplace called mobbing where people are being bullied at work. So, you know, the bullying never stops, actually, which just blows my mind. But anyway, yeah, you go to a situation that's consistently stressful and your body's always full of adrenaline. It's a big problem. So that seems sort of clear, you know, physical threats and unpleasant situations that make sense. 
But remember, thoughts do the exact same thing. And thoughts are actually more intense because they can become almost visual after a time. At one point in my process, I, I developed a full-blown what's called obsessive compulsive disorder, which is manifested by repetitive intrusive thoughts that the more you suppress them, the worse they get. The worse they get, and they become almost visual. So every human being, by the way, has to deal with this. People spend lots of different ways of coping with it. A lot of people, like I did, completely suppress it. Yeah, you know, I'm not angry. I'm fine. I'm not anxious. I'm fine. But guess what? They have stomach aches. Or they have headaches. Or they have migraines or burning in their feet or skin rashes or insomnia. Or maybe they're just really very rigid, structured people who, by the way, probably aren't listening to this program. So there's ways of – so people cope with it. So people aren't necessarily connected with their anxiety and, and frustrations because – Anxiety makes you feel vulnerable. People hate feeling vulnerable. That's a survival feeling. So they do anything to cover it up. And that's why you have so much dysfunctional, destructive human behavior is that we are trapped by our thoughts. And again, trapped by our thoughts, trapped by a physical unpleasant scenario gives you the same chemical reaction. So by the way, so the, the, the solution, by the way, is a little bit different. I'd like to jump into that just a little bit. We can go, go into that deeper if you'd like. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, quit your job. Okay, fine, you quit your job, go someplace else, and you feel better, and you will. So you're right, the repeated exposure to the unpleasant situation is that you quit your job and go someplace else. So, or some people, I talked to a friend of mine last night who's under extreme stress because his company is going huge, and he's become very successful. So it's not a, there's lots of stress with, stress with success, by the way. It's not just a bad boss. Mm-hmm. So his stress levels are higher, and he had been pain-free for a long time. Now symptoms are coming back because just the level of stress, just the amount of stress, and he has deadlines, etc. So you can quit your job, change the situation down, and people do that. But but again, you can't escape your thoughts. The solution is the same for both scenarios, whether, whether it's your thoughts or physical threat, is that stress isn't the problem. It's a Adrenaline, cortisol, stress chemical response, that's the problem. So what happens is it becomes stressful avoiding stress, and pretty soon, of course, you can't avoid it anymore. And of course, you can't avoid your thoughts. So I wrote a website post called The Eye of the Storm, is that people want to somehow become happier by controlling circumstances, controlling people, getting more money, more accomplishments, more experiences. And so we're in this endless frenzy to become happy and what we're really trying to do is outrun the anxiety, which you actually can do for a while, but eventually doesn't work anymore. So the key to this whole process, by the way, is you become comfortable with very uncomfortable feelings and emotions. So as you quit fighting these things and become, I use the word, assimilate those into your nervous system, be okay with anxiety, be okay with anger. Again, you don't want to suppress them, right? So as you become okay with those unpleasant emotions and quit fighting them, and develop a part of your brain that's more rich, create creative hobbies, friends, etc. You don't solve chronic pain; you move away from it. So you separate and you go a different direction, and you train your body not to react to these sensory input with adrenaline every time, because again, stress is a threat. Mm-hmm. So it's happened to me. I've had a lot of stress this last year, more than I've had in a while, and I've had to practice the tools again at a level I've never done before and once you become relatively free of external circumstances for your peace of mind you're free but we're always trying to control our i mean our go-to default mechanisms is we want to control our environment to become happy 
And I use a metaphor called the eye of the storm. So if the wind represents your racing circumstances, which you can't control most of them, you're going to wear, you're going to wear yourself out. Or if the wind swirling around represents your racing thoughts, same thing. You can't control your thoughts either. So what the tools do is they pull you into the center where it's quiet. So then paradoxically, you have much more energy to actually solve the problems that come up in front of you. And what eventually slowly happens is that stress ceases to become stress. It's just another part of life. So the process, the solution is very paradoxical. Yes, because essentially, you know, you want to be calm. So you think a lot more about the problem but thinking a lot more about the problem causes it to be worse and makes you less calm. It sounds like. Right. So, so the solution, by the way, to stress is different than you would think. Because stress, by definition, is a threat. Otherwise, it wouldn't be stress. So I wrote a website post called The Eye of the Storm, where the, wind, where the swirling winds represent your racing thoughts. And we try to control our thoughts. Of course, we try to calm ourselves down, which doesn't work. Or the wind can represent our racing circumstances, which, again, most of them we can't control. So we spend a lot of energy in life trying to control circumstances and control thoughts so we can be happy, right? Mm -hmm. So the solution actually is to use the tools to get to the center, which we've heard a lot in the past. So let's get centered, except it's hard to get there. So what you're doing, this is a letting go on a fixing process because, again, you can't control the wind and you can't control your circumstances and your thoughts. So what you're doing, you're separating from these situations and at the end of the day, you end up in the middle of the storm or the eye of the storm, which is calm. So then paradoxically, you end up having more energy to solve your life problems and live your life than you do by trying to solve everything in all at once. The other thing is if a lot of things also line up to become perfect circumstances or whatever, then the other paradox is you become anxious because you're not sure what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. So you can't win either way by trying to control external circumstances. So as you go through the process, you'll become independent, relatively independent of external circumstances for your peace of mind. You're free. So you can't fix yourself. This is a process of letting go, and you become comfortable with uncomfortable thoughts and emotions. As you quit fighting them, they start losing their power. And then you start nurturing the parts of your brain that are enjoyable, good food, good wine, good friends, play, etc. As you nurture that and develop that part of your brain, you're actually changing the physical structure of your brain. And as you know, there's a term called neuroplasticity where your brain's changing every millisecond. Your brain's changing all the time. So you're creating new connections all the time in your brain. And as you nurture those ones that are enjoyable and don't use the ones that are less enjoyable, things start to change. You start to get a shift. So this is a letting go process, not fixing. That's the, that's the easiest and hardest part about the whole project. Fascinating. So essentially the, the chaos that is occurring in your life or the chaos that you know, is in your mind are like the raging winds of a hurricane. And there is you know, some peace to be had in the center, but so many people focus on the thoughts or the things that are happening. So they're essentially out there where the wind is at its strongest, you know, at the, the edge of the storm. Whereas if they just move to the middle of the storm, they could find some peace and tranquility. Is that right? Well, not some peace, a lot of peace and tranquility. I mean, it really is very quiet in the center. And 
you know, my life's full of all sorts of stuff. I got a big projects going on. I'm still a complex spine surgeon. So what happens is you literally, it's a, it's a learned skill. You simply train your body to, in other words, you want to feel the emotion. You don't want to suppress the emotion because, again, like we talked about before, that causes that negative emotion to become stronger. Mm-hmm. As you learn just to take that deep breath, calm down, relax, why your body just doesn't doesn't adrenalize as much or very little eventually. So you literally train your brain not to react to these outside situations. Then as you quit being adrenalized to stress, then that stress actually ceases to become stress. It's just the next thing that you do. So it's just a learned skill repetition that literally changes the structure of your brain. So pretty soon, the automatic response to that particular stress in the past ceases to become adrenaline. Or let's say you were bullied at school when you were in sixth grade. And a person, either that same person or somebody like that comes into your life, and like you pointed out before, you're now exposed to that stimulus that caused that adrenaline response. Well, let's say that person's at work and really is actually a fairly nice person, but your body's still reacting. Again, it's not positive thinking. You just learn to take the emotion, let your brain wander the fact this person really isn't a threat, and you just start taking the hit, feeling the emotion, and just have less adrenaline. You remember, anxiety is the adrenaline, anxiety is the pain. So as you decrease your adrenaline, your anxiety drops to the floor. Interesting. Yeah, there's um, a few things I wanted to touch on too. We'll get into the, um, you know, how to cope with this in just one second. The something you touched on was how, you know, people can make changes in their life to to avoid the stress. You know, if they got an awful boss, they can try and find a different job or something like that. Obviously, you know, make those changes if you can, but it's certainly not a practical treatment or solution to try to just completely eliminate stress from your life. I mean, stress is part of life. That is just completely unavoidable. I don't care if you have the, the greatest dream job ever and the, you know, a spouse who's a complete angel, like you will deal with stress in your life. So learning these ways to deal with it when something stressful in your life occurs is an infinitely better solution than simply trying to eliminate the stress because that's, you know, that's not a permanent solution. Things will always crop up. Well, the word I like to use is really just assimilating these reactive survival circuits into your life. So it's, I'll change the word just a little bit of coping is that you really change your brain and the stress really ceases to, be, ceases to become a stress. You really are in the center. It really is quiet. You really get to enjoy your life. And Coping means you're trying to fight it, survive it, fix it, and it's a struggle. And once you get into the situation, it's interesting because the struggle, in a way, ceases. It's not as much of a struggle when you're not fighting pain all the time. And when you're, and by the way, when I talk to my patients about surgery, they come in with sciatic or they come in with leg pain, etc., and they're in chronic pain. And I give them a choice of saying, "Look, I can get rid of your leg pain with surgery, but I can't get rid of your anxiety." Or if we could go through a process that dropped down your anxiety and you had to live with a leg pain, what would you choose? And probably 9% of people say, look, I can't deal with the anxiety. And that's what happened to me. This raw, relentless progression of anxiety is the pain. And physical pain is somehow we can cope with that in a better way than we can with this relentless anxiety. And then what happens with the anxiety, you take pain and then you layer on the anxiety to double hit. Once the anxiety drops, whatever pain is left, first of all, does drop down because the nerve conduction improves or often goes away. 
but it, it just becomes physical pain. It's not a big deal. The anxiety to me is like a hot branding iron on your brain. I mean, the worst part of my ordeal by far away was the anxiety. And again, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything. I worked hard. I was responsible. I was accomplished. And all of a sudden, the anxiety came out of the blue. So if I had just known about this possibility, again, clear back in grade school, it honestly wouldn't have happened. So once you understand anxiety is just this reaction that's normal and that you learn to live with it and assimilate it, you don't have to cope with it. It just becomes part of, it's actually part, I don't know how to describe it, it just becomes an integral part of your life and it doesn't feel like stress anymore. Now that was one of the probably most insightful and probably personally relevant parts of the books for me. Um, that and when you were talking about the different ways that people will traditionally cope with stress. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned before we started this call, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and there's a very, it's a very blue collar city, very working man's town, and people are very, um, you know, any sort of not being happy or complaining, they just kind of view as like a weakness. And it's, you know, right. be tough, do your work, keep your head down, don't complain. And, you know, even like my father, he's a blue collar worker, and I always looked up to him because he's a very, seems like he never shows his emotions. He's a very tough, stoic guy. And I sort of modeled my behavior and way of acting around that. And after, you know, it was in my early mid twenties, I had a bit of a breakdown because I, you know, whatever life threw at me that was unpleasant, whatever thing I had that I wasn't dealing with, I just sort of, I just shut it down and just, you know, put it off to the side and said, nope, this isn't going to affect me. I'm just going to push forward. And you can only do that for so long before it just, it causes you to collapse basically. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you, you described the exact scenario that, the scenario that took me down. I mean, this is a universal human experience and everybody gets through it differently or not. And a lot of people don't. You can sort of, a lot of people, let, let, let's go backwards in the conversation. So have you heard of the ACE score, the Adverse Childhood Experiences score by chance? Uh, I have not. So they did a study in California on 17,000 people and they took adverse childhood experiences and they put it, they simply counted them. This included mental health illness in the family of the mother or father, drug abuse in the family, um, physical, emotional or, or sexual um, abuse, et cetera. So is it possible, it depends on the scale, a score of um, eight or 10 things you could have on your um, adverse childhood experiences. So, only 30% of people had an ACE score of zero, and 35% had an ACE score of three or more. And my, my ACE score, by the way, was five, which is very high. And if your ACE score is three or more, there's something like quintuple the chance of diabetes, obesity, drug abuse, all sorts of stuff, because your core reactive patterns are pretty sensitized right from the beginning. You don't have the resiliency and the resources to deal with life because you've already been beat up right from the very beginning. So when your initial programming is rough, then your reactions to stress are really uncomfortable when in proportion to the stress. And people have a better start, still have stress, but they may not hit that breaking point to like ages 40, 50, or 60, or they may not hit it at all. I mean, 10% of people sort of get through life just fine. That's my guesstimate. But they also found a study a couple of years ago, or actually this last year, they found only 17% of people in the United States did not have a significant mental health diagnosis at some point in their lifetime, only 17%. And 
And again, anxiety is the key here, and all sorts of things come out of anxiety. And again, it's a neurochemical reflex. It's not a psychological issue. This is just that survival reaction to the environment. So again, I know I keep focusing on anxiety, but really it is the pain. And then all these physical manifestations come on out because again, when you're full of adrenaline, it shuts down the blood supply to the bladder and the bowel and the brain. It increases the blood supply to the muscles. It increases the speed of the heart. So that's why there's over 30 physical symptoms from an adrenalized nervous system. That's why, again, going way back in the conversation, I think the term mental health and physical health should disappear. It's just a unit response that are connected to each other literally by the millisecond. There's no difference. So when you look at my book, we talked about this before the interview, mm-hmm. is that all the book is doing is presenting primary care. Everything in the book, there's nothing new in the book. Everything in there has been documented in hundreds of research studies to be effective. We know sleep affects everything. We know that anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, all those things change the body's chemistry, which really unsettle people. We know that physical conditioning makes a difference, that the better physical shape you are, the better you feel. Nutrition, etc. Medication management, of course, is part of medicine in general. And then one came in there, which, which turned out to be inadvertent, but turned out to be one of the biggest parts of the process, is life outlook in the terms of forgiveness, which is also quite a bit of research on forgiveness, because when you're angry and holding, holding on to things, again, stress kills. So if you hold on to something in the past and stay adrenalized, it really affects your nervous system. And forgiveness is a big deal as far as your physical health. So again, it's just a unit response. So it's evolving in the conversations that as I talk to different companies and consulting, et cetera, then my book is actually a wellness book. It is what medicine should be doing. It's mainstream medicine that's wanted off course. We're throwing random treatments at a complex problem without knowing the background. Additionally, we're not talking to our patients anymore. We don't know the situation that brings a person into the office. So you may have a bone spur in your back, but all of a sudden you have a severe loss in your family, your body chemistry changes, that bone spur will be the first thing to light up. So all of a sudden that person goes off to surgery. Well, what we have found out, I have almost 100 patients with surgical lesions that they just find out what's going on. Somebody's father died, nephew committed suicide, son, son ended up in jail, one person had their son murder another person. I mean, bad stresses. And... You can't do surgery, even before I knew anything about chronic pain, you can't do surgery in the face of that extreme of a stress. You just can't do that. Because you're adding on the stress of surgery on top of other life stresses, right? Mm -hmm. So we also know when you perform surgery in the face of stress and unresolved issues, that you actually can cause chronic pain up to 40 to 60% of the time. And I see it every week. People have had these major surgeries, and they come in, and they're way worse. So... What we're doing, we're throwing simplistic random solutions to a complex problem. The way you solve chronic pain is three three steps. One of them is understanding the problem. We talked about it a little bit today, the, the, the neurophysiological nature of pain. The second thing is there's multiple aspects of pain that have to be addressed at the same time. So the analogy I use is like fighting a forest fire. There's multiple strategies, multiple strategies involved in containing and fighting a forest fire. All of them count. Same thing with chronic pain. Every person has their unique set of variables that affect their pain. You have to address all of them simultaneously. 
The final step is the patient takes control. Since you're complex, I'm complex, you're individual, I'm individual, the only person who can actually solve the problem is you. <clears throat> so you have you may you may or may not have a sleep issue. I may or may not have a sleep issue, but if I do or you do, you're gonna approach it completely differently than I am because your life is different than mine. So with a complex problem like chronic pain, and of course each person being the individual, the solution has to come from the patient. Absolutely. There's um there's a topic or a, a thought I have on this that I kind of want to get your opinion on, but first I want to um, sort of see where you were before this to see if this idea tracks. So before you took this approach that you do now to treating your patients, um, do you think that you had the, the knowledge or the ability to see how multifaceted this problem was? And, you know, if you looked at it, could you have been able to figure out that, okay, there's all these different factors at play, maybe we should hold on a second? Or did you not have the knowledge and expertise yet to really recognize that? Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, in, in, in the medical profession's defense, we're not trained this way, which is actually mm -hmm. somewhat perplexing to me, because we all know about adrenaline, it's really high school physiology, we know the body reacts to it, and then the neuroscience is right there, a lot of the stuff we know for 50 years has been documented that if you do surgery on somebody who is anxious, depressed, not sleeping, et cetera, the surgical outcomes are terrible. We've actually known that for about 50 years. That's known over and over and over again. But another paper came out of Baltimore about two years ago that showed that only 10% of surgeons are assessing, are assessing and treating the known factors that adversely affect outcomes. So I don't want to spend too much time ranting here, but people are walking in doctor's offices and in five or 10 minutes, they're having major life decisions made for them in the form of surgery that aren't based on anything. There's no structural problems there. The person is often under extreme stress. We're not talking to our patients, we're not listening, and we're just randomly prescribing treatments. In a way, it would be bad enough if they didn't have a downside, but spine surgery has a tremendous downside when it fails. Mm -hmm. People often become worse. We're now throwing larger surgeries at patients in the form of eight and nine level fusions, which is a complication rate over 70%. And half of those are pretty severe. So I think the business of medicine has made the use of procedures very efficient. We, I think the medical profession right now is actually part of damaging our society because we're actually hurting people instead of actually solving the problem. So we're doing these random procedures in a big way that actually have a significant risk and downside to it. They aren't effective. They often make the pain worse. And of course, you get your hopes up to go through a major operative procedure. And it doesn't, let's say the surgery goes fine without a complication, you're not better. That's pretty disappointing. But then you have a complication and you're worse. That's really disappointing. Then you get to be angry at that surgery literally the rest of your life. And rightfully so, mm -hmm. which again, adrenalizes the nervous system even more. So it's a horrible, so I'm a complex surgeon. I see the salvage work where people have had 5, 10, 15 operations before they get to me. It is pretty horrible. Yeah, it's great that they've made these procedures that much more efficient, but that doesn't mean that we should do them when they're really not necessary. Correct. And literally 99% of the body symptoms are, are produced by body chemistry. And the structural issues, again, I'm not, Essentially, what's really ironic right now with the business of medicine, they actually monitor us as to what we do or don't do. 
Essentially, every procedure that we do in medicine for spine surgery has actually been documented to not be effective. It doesn't work. Wait, what, so sorry, what know, percentage was that? What's that? What percentage was that that are not effective? So, for instance, facet rhizotomies or facet blocks or epidurals or spine surgery, all these things that we do have actually been documented to not be effective. They don't work. And they can help for four to six weeks, but, you know, six to 12 months later, the symptoms are back. So the data is really clear that these procedures don't work, but that's what we're actually being, I would use the term, encouraged to do because they produce revenue. Sounds like so it's a very revenue-driven model, and it's really what's paid for, not necessarily the quality of the product. Yeah, it sounds like they're really treating the symptoms instead of getting to the root disease that's causing these things. Correct. So the reason that I brought that bit up, um, one thing that I've seen, you know, the people who are doing what I view as sort of the most groundbreaking care or who have the the best processes that actually get achievable, sustainable, long-term results are people who, you know, they look at, as you say, the body as a whole, all the different moving parts, as opposed to, you know, a spine surgeon who just looks at the spine and sees a damaged bit of the spine and think that that has to be what caused the problem. And essentially it almost seems like a case of, you know, the specialist who's trained in this one thing, it's that old adage of uh, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But there's, there's, you know, to really treat all of these problems and give somebody the care that they need, you need a full toolbox. You can't just have a hammer. Right. Absolutely. I mean, what's happened in medicine now is that this has been, again, been around since 1927. There's a Dr. Francis Peabody who, who was lecturing to a group of medical students in Boston. And he was concerned then about the invasion of technology into the patient-doctor relationship. This is in 1927. Wow. And the problem is that it gets deeper than this because, for instance, the human brain evolved by interacting with other humans it turned out that social connection is as much of a need as air, food, and water, just about that high level of a need. Mm-hmm. And then conversely, when you have social isolation, you have these same symptoms as you have with chronic pain. It's, you get the same lack of interaction with other humans, and you're socially isolated. It creates the same set of physical symptoms as in chronic pain. So again, we're throwing some medications, physical therapy injections at patients, and they're living by themselves, they're on the street, they're having horrible family issues. And until, not that I can solve all those issues, but I can at least acknowledge that they're there. I can guide them towards treatments that can solve the problem. I can make them aware how much their family situation is actually affecting their physical health. And then maybe, I'd love to talk about this in, in, a, in another conversation with you. Mm-hmm. This is not really in the books, more on the website, is that the family by far and away, is one of the biggest factors that triggers people to stay in pain. It's also the f- strongest factor in pulling people out of pain. So the family dynamics are incredibly powerful either way as far as keeping people in or out of pain. And that's, that's again, evolved on the website. And so it's uh, it's been a very, very powerful force as far as healing people is, is understanding the family dynamics and how you can fix those. Absolutely. Yeah, that could probably be an entire another episode on its own. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the social isolation is a very interesting, I'd say relevant point these days, especially, I mean, with technology and the way things are, people, 
you know, I don't recall the specific numbers, but you're seeing studies come out where a very large percentage of people will say they don't have any very close friends. People are sort of being, I don't want to say divided, but people don't seem to be connecting as much as they used to in person as a result of all of this, you know, alternative ways of communicating and choosing right. to spend more of your time, live more of your life doing things online as opposed to in person. So right. that's, yeah, that could be a whole, a whole other conversation in and of itself. Um, but but the, been, my, my point being is that when you have the social isolation factor or you're not sleeping, mm-hmm. those are the trump cards. In other words, medications, physical therapy injections aren't going to work in the face of severe social isolation. So there are a couple of papers out now talking about social prescribing, so to speak, of actually addressing social issues. But again, that's where medicine has gone off track is that we aren't seeing the patient as a whole anymore. And so you have to take that whole circumstance. And again, people say, well, what does your stress at home have to do with your health? Well, it has everything to do with your health because it affects the body's chemistry, right? So the key issue is really understand that person in your office, getting to know them, not making any major decisions, surgical or, or otherwise, until you understand who this person is. It's really critical. It usually takes multiple visits. I never make a surgical decision on the first visit ever. I never did, by the way, but especially now. I now put patients through at least 8 to 12 weeks of what we call prehab, of applying these principles, principles before every surgery. And that's where I have now almost, now almost 100 patients cancel their surgery with surgical problems because their pain disappeared. And as you calm down the nervous system, it changes the nerve conduction, the pain actually disappears. So the process has actually devastated my elective surgical practice, which is a good problem to have, of course. Yeah. But it, I can't sustain my practice anymore in electrospine surgery because so many people get better without the surgery. That's completely the opposite from the first book where I said, look, if you have a structural problem, just fix it and do this, do this other stuff later. Then the data says, well, if you do surgery in the face of these other issues, the results are very unpredictable. So then I started this prehab process and people started, in fact, most patients have just canceled their surgery because their pain disappeared. That's... Fascinating. And that really ties into where we're going uh, with this next. So could you um, give us sort of a brief overview? What does this, um, what is, as is referred to in the book, the doc process, the direct your own care process look like? Well, what I would recommend, I'd, there's a lot of layers to this. Again, even maybe another conversation, but mm-hmm. let's say you're my patient in the office and you have, say, headaches or neck pain. And what I explained really briefly that I looked, I've looked at your MRI scan. You have some degeneration, but degeneration has been documented to not be associated with neck pain. So not a surgical problem. So I would have you get a copy of my book. But first of all, I said, look, go to my website, backincontrol.com, and simply start on stage one. And in stage one, there's five steps. First one is learn about chronic pain, which, of course, is not a going process. But the second one that I want them to start that afternoon is called expressive writing, we simply write down your thoughts and you tear them up. And as we mentioned before, you can't escape your thoughts, but you can separate from them. So the writing puts your thoughts on paper. There's a space there that's not connected to vision and feel. So with neuroplasticity, it's an awareness, separation, redirecting process. The writing does awareness and separation in one move. There's over 300 research papers that document that the writing works in different forms. So it's a remarkable, simple tool it's the only step in the entire process that's mandatory. It's the only one starting step that you can't escape. 
And we don't know why it's so effective. I think it's the craziest thing in the world still. You know, I still write every day. I quit writing my symptoms, come back in about two or three weeks. It's a fascinating little exercise that's incredibly well documented and obviously no risk to it. The third step is called active meditation. We just take three to five seconds and you put your brain on a different sensation. Like even right now as I'm talking, you just feel where you're sitting or drop your shoulders and just feel it. And what you've done, you've changed the sensory input from pain or whatever else to just that sensation. And so you switch the sensory input. The fourth thing is sleep. Huge deal. You say, look, if you're not sleeping, there's a section of my book on sleep. Take a look at that. If you have to go, to go to your primary care doctor to get medications. But without sleep, nothing else works. They've actually shown that lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. It induces chronic pain. And the final thing, which has been fascinating, is if you think in terms of pathways and programming, the more your attention is on the pain, the more you're going to reinforce it. That's why you can't fix it. So one of the biggest things I ask people to do is never, when you walk out the door of my office, you will never talk about your pain again, ever. And their eyes open wide. A lot of people, their eyes open wide wide open. And then the spouse or partner usually just smiles because they're sort of worn out from the person talking about the pain a lot. But I didn't realize that people in pain talk about their pain all the time. So when they leave the office, they say, look, never. I don't care. Friends, family, anybody, you're not going to talk about your pain ever again. That's what the piece of paper is for. And it's remarkable how powerful that one step has been. It's been unbelievable. And people forget that there's, a, there's another life out there besides there's this endless search for the question to solve pain. And again, you're putting your brain into a different spot and evolving good food, good wine, good friends. You just came back to normal life. And as you go back to a reasonable life, you actually pay less attention to the pain pathways and they start to atrophy. So even though you can't fix it, as you lose a path, as you use the pathways less and use the other pathways more, it's like diverting a river into a different channel where more and more water flows to the new channel and less and less water through, you know, flows to the old channel. And at some tipping point, the pain really does go away. That's so why we have hundreds of patients that have gone to pain free and very, very consistent. So with engagement, probably 9% of people go to pain free. What's fascinating and disturbing is that, that probably half the people I see don't want to do this. And it turns out that probably the biggest block to solving chronic pain, believe it or not, is people don't want to give it up. They don't want to give it up. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, when so much of your daily life is built around this one thing, if you give it up, the thought can almost seem like, well, what? What is my life about then? What do I do now, now that that's gone? I'm, it's, you can feel lost in a way. Well, that's part of it because you, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable, which is not a comfortable feeling. But the other thing, there's lots of power in pain. I mean, it's unbelievable how people mm-hmm. control their families with their pain. And then other people in the family go into a caretaker role, which becomes their new identity. And so there's a family dynamic that's pretty interesting. But the biggest block is that people become addicted to their power of pain. It's a powerful tool and people don't want to give it up. It sounds crazy, but I took me years to figure this out and I realized that if somebody doesn't want to give up their pain, there's really not much I can do. Yeah, it's, um, I'm not, I'm sure this isn't the only application, but if nothing else, it's certainly a tool that you can use to make other people feel sorry for you or make them feel guilty if they're being mean towards you. I mean, if you're, you know, 
it's a kind of a trump card to win any argument in a way, you know, oh, how could you not care about my pain? And then what's the right. other person going to say in response to that? There's nothing that, you know, leaves them the winner of that argument. Right. But chronic pain really, really wears out families. And of course, it goes into the school system with kids going to school with alternative anxiety and frustration. And you've probably read that essentially one out of three adults has chronic pain. I maintain if you look at anxiety as a pain, um, probably 90% of people have pain because most people aren't taught how to process anxiety. We're just not taught this tool. So that's my dream, by the way, is to put this right into the school system, starting right there in preschool and first grade. Now, just how do you just auto-regulate? How do you just regulate your nervous system so you don't have adrenaline every time somebody stresses you out? And just learning that skill right from the beginning would be a huge, huge step and change in our society. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's one thing that I wanted to touch back on because I found this to be really, really fascinating. So the was it uh, expressive journaling? Was that the phrase? Expressive writing, correct. Oh, expressive That's writing, two, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, as it's at least as I recall, written about in the book, um, the process is essentially spend 15 to 30 minutes writing about whatever your thoughts are and sort of amp up, you know, think almost sort of intensify those thoughts if possible, think about them more intensely and write about them, you know, as graphically as possible and as much detail as possible. And then once you're done, take the paper and rip it up. Is that right? Well, it's a little different than that. So here's the deal. The research is done on, started in 1982 by Dr. Pennebaker out of Texas. And he took college students and had them spend 20 minutes for four days in a row writing down the most intense emotional experiences of their, of their life in detail. And then they weren't to be shared. Simply, he didn't have them tear them up. He simply um, had them write things down. There was 14 variables that were affected in a huge way. So they found out it helped asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, student performance, athletic performance. I mean, the list went on and on and on. So then there have been hundreds of research papers since then on the different types of writing. But it sort of evolved in the first book. I talked about negative writing. It turns out just write down anything. Remember, you can't escape your thoughts. And the reason why people tear them up instantly is for two reasons. One of them is to write with freedom. So the thoughts can be positive or negative, rational or irrational. So you write with freedom, and then you don't analyze it. Because if you spend time thinking about it, analyzing it, trying to solve it, remember when you tear these things up, you're not getting, not getting rid of the thoughts because they're just thoughts. They're permanent pathways. They're not going away. Mm-hmm. So the anxiety's not going away. The anger's not going away. You're, they're simply there. So you've separated. And again, the separation is not connected with vision and feel. And then you can do the active meditation. You know, just relax a little bit, do visualizations, meditation, good food, good wine, good friends. Those are redirecting processes. But what the writing does, in my mind, is a mechanical meditation. In other words, the thoughts here, you separate. And of course, the meditation, you do that in your brain where you see a thought come into your nervous system. And then you watch it pass through. And then some people visualize it going up in smoke or watching it pass through like a cloud. And you can do it with meditation, but it's hard. I, I couldn't do it. A lot of people can't. So the writing does the first two parts of meditation in one step of awareness and separation. And then to me, the redirection is the act of meditation. But for some reason, the process really doesn't start without the writing. 
And so it's been consistent. I was in chronic pain for 15 solid years. I had read a book that said, write. So I started to write. I thought it was the book, but it turns out in retrospect to me, the writing actually solved the problem. So this expressive writing, you can get you can get improvement without starting the expressive writing, but people really don't heal until they start the writing. It's fascinating. Excellent. Yeah, I had um, I'd heard you know anecdotally from people before that journaling or writing is a great sort of entry level uh, mindfulness practice or way to ease chaotic thoughts if you know, you find meditation difficult. Um, and, you know, many, many people have said this, but from what you're telling me, the science is also, that studies are also showing that this is very successful in achieving those goals. Is that right? Studies have proven this? Well, yeah, there's over almost 400, almost 400 of them, almost 400 studies wow. that works. And there's actually not one paper, by the way, that says spine surgery works for back pain. Not one. So again, going back to the whole thing about mainstream medicine, this is mainstream medicine. The science is very deep. It started in 1982, which how many years ago is that? Mm-hmm. So this is not new science. This is done way before the functional MRI scans were available, way before we knew about neuroplasticity. And I'm not sure how Dr. Pennebaker ran across this, but my goodness, the research goes on and on and on about the effectiveness of this expressive writing. And it's unbelievable. I mean, I write, it's been 15 years since I've been I started in 2001, I guess. It's been a while. And I mentioned quickly earlier that if I quit doing my expressive writing, that within about two weeks, those little skin rashes pop up in the back of my wrist, my ears start to ring, my feet start to burn, my sleep starts falling apart, um, I become more anxious. And it just, when I first started to write, when I was in really bad shape, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I did, I did tear it up, just random, random scribbling thoughts. It does not have to be rational at all. And you just tear them up. Couldn't be simpler. And within two weeks, things started to shift. And by six months after a few of the layers were added on, I went to pain-free. I had no idea at all how I got into the problem. I did not realize the effect of the expressive writing. When I wrote the first book, I honestly didn't know the research on it. I just had started recommending writing to my patients. And then um, I didn't know the data. And then what I found out about three years ago, the data is very, very deep. And so, again, the second book is much more based on the neuroscience research. And I have been instinctively doing this for years. I think one of the reasons why the book has been quite consistently effective is that I, I was in chronic pain for 15 solid years at a very extreme level in the last seven. So I learned this from the, from the ground up literally a millimeter at a time just crazy, no hope, desperate, you call, you name it. I just was not doing well. And people look at me now and go, well, how can that be? You're fine. And the answer is, oh, am I fine? I'm thriving. It's great. And it's not that hard in a way. If I, I mean, most people come out of the hole in about three to six months, sometimes a lot faster, sometimes a little slower. And it's not that hard. I, you know, I fortunately, through my horrendous experience, learned how to do this much faster for other people. But it's a very consistent process with engagement. And I can tell within about 10 seconds when I walk into a patient's room whether they've been writing or not. And you can just tell. It's unbelievable. And when they haven't, they'll give me 10,000 excuses why they haven't. And you go, look, I'll see you back in two weeks. I honestly can't do anything until patients start their writing. They even show that a recent study showed that when you do skin biopsies for dermatology, 
that the skin healing rate doubled with the writing. It actually increased the, the speed that a skin biopsy would heal. It's really stunning how this thing works. Skin, uh, skin biopsy, that is essentially a needle, correct? Or is there, is, how is that? It, it's a punch biopsy. It's about a three millimeter biopsy. And they just did, it, volunteers did this where they um, took a little punch biopsy out of the skin and then um, they just measured the healing rate. They found out with people that were doing the writing that the healing rate was much faster in those people that had been doing the writing. Interesting. Yeah, I've noticed, because um, I've been very anxious myself uh, lately, and so I'm definitely going to have to do some expressive writing myself, but um, I've been noticing as I've gotten older, a lot of injuries seem like they heal slower, like bruises will stick around for a week or two in some cases when they seemed like they would only last a few days when I was younger. Um, right. Fascinating. You, can, I ask how, can I ask how old you are? Is that, is that? No, that's fine. I'm 28. 28. Okay. So you probably know your generation right now that the, the um, right now the instance of chronic pain in your generation has gone up 800% in, in 10 years. And then it's now estimated in teenagers right now that the instance of disruptive anxiety has gone up to one in two. And I gave a lecture at a high school about two years ago, and out of 1,500 students, 350 were on chronic medications that, that they had to get from the school nurse every day. So right now what's happening, there's lots of reasons for it, but anxiety is just rampant in your generation. It's, it's horrendous. And I love working with your age group. My daughter's 27, my son's 33, because your brains are so neuroplastic. And so I would just caution you that the writing is not the solution. It's just a starting point. It does the awareness and separation in one move. And then the reprogramming, that's what I would encourage you to start the writing. And then combine that with that little active meditation tool. And uh, just watch what happens. And then I'd love to have conversations with people. I'd love to have a conversation with you in a week or two once you've started that. Because the hardest part about this process is that people want to get rid of their anxiety. In other words, they, oh, they want to get rid of their pain. So when I do my workshops, I go, look, you're in a three-day workshop with me. You're not here to get rid of your pain. That's not the goal. Because if that's the goal, of course, pain's running the show. So that's the paradox is you're going to move forward with your pain as you assimilate anxiety, or I'll use the word pain, into your life, it ceases to become pain. And the pain really does disappear. The anxiety really does drop dramatically. But it doesn't drop by trying to fix it. It's dropping by moving through it or with it. It's, it's really tricky because everybody, all of us are geared to wanting to fix yourselves. But again, your attention's on yourself. And if you're, trying to fix, if you're trying to fix these survival, reactive survival patterns, then again, you must put your hand right into a hornet's nest. There's nothing there. You're going to stir up that nest badly. Mm-hmm. So it's been fun. I mean, it's been incredibly rewarding but again your age group has such a neuroplastic brain compared to mine in other words your capacity to change your nervous system you're actually physically changing changing nervous system by the way we actually can see the pathways form and reform in the brain and so you're actually physically changing the structure of your brain as you go through this process so at your age again why it's very very neuroplastic fascinating yeah that um 
you know, you say that the how significantly the rates of anxiety have increased in people in my age group. And, you know, even anecdotally amongst my friends, I can see that firsthand. I know very few people my age who don't suffer from a significant amount of anxiety in one way or another. So I know right. that that's something that a lot of people are interested in. And I think that could actually be um, an interesting thing in and of itself, maybe do like a a case study where every few weeks um, I try to implement this process and we record our conversations about it and sort of track how I feel and how my progress is and to share it with other people to show that, you know, this works. This is what you need to do to, you know, calm, well, not, you know, calm your mind down to an extent and deal with these issues to not let it, you know, run your life essentially. You know, I'd love to do that. I mean, that would be fascinating because what happens, one of the advantages of my book is I do tell my story. And when I do our seminars, we do phone calls afterwards where people share their positives, positives and negatives. And so, again, the permanent pathways, they're always going to be triggered. So you'll go through tremendous ups and downs. And as you go through the learning process and discuss it, each time you go through an up and a down while you learn a different angle on it, and allows your brain to change again and again and again. So yeah, I'd love to talk to you in a couple of weeks once you get into this a little bit and, and coach you through this. Because it'll be interesting. You'll, you'll, I mean, literally, some people start the expressive writing tonight and three days are so much better they can't believe it. The first thing I say is say, look, you're going to crash and burn. These are permanent pathways. And sure enough, they do. And then the process is one of simply when you're triggered, you're triggered. You don't want to suppress it. But then you don't stay, you don't get triggered as often. You don't stay in the hole as long. And so it's simply a learned skill to come out of the hole very, very quickly. And so, yeah, I, I think it'd be very fascinating to, uh, and informative to your listeners to actually go through the process with you. I'd, I'd love to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. We can create a whole series around that. Okay. So, um, people who are suffering from some sort of frequent pain or even just, uh, frequent anxiety, if the accompanying pain isn't something that they notice, but they do feel really anxious all the time, you'd say, um, the expressive writing, the active meditation, what other tactics should they use? Well, I just would advise them to go to stage one of the website, backincontrol.com mm -hmm. and, and start the writing and the relaxation in the form of active meditation, not talk about the pain, which includes anxiety. And then sleep is huge. And, and that's just, just the starting point. I just would work on those things particularly. But keep in mind that the expressive writing is not the solution. It's just that first awareness separation. So it's a foundational step that's necessary, but people will write and they'll write. Well, again, it's just the starting point, but it's also the necessary starting point. And then I would concentrate on simply switching sensory input, which is in, which is basically an abbreviated mindfulness. And like right now, again, just feel where you're sitting. Drop your shoulders, three to five seconds, done. That's it. So you, you simply switched sensory input. And then as you start wandering through the book, there's lots of other layers to it. But that's a great starting point to, to start the writing relaxation and then work on sleep. Excellent. Excellent. So get plenty of sleep, expressive writing, active meditation, all, all don't, excellent. Don't talk about don't, your pain. Yeah, don't talk about your pain. And right. That's, yeah. Well, that's it, also includes, it also includes no complaining. I mean, flat out, just, you know, you get upset about something, you'll complain to somebody about it, you're upset. Mm -hmm. Just write it down. 
don't don't talk to other people about it because it's a long story, but it's called mirror neurons. As you you know talk about your troubles and complain and commiserate, it actually you end up bonding bonding with other people on victimhood instead of creativity, and it starts taking everybody down with you. Um, so yeah, not talking about not talking about your pain, either mental or physical, is a huge part of this process Thanks. and very powerful. That's an interesting one that I'd heard, not for the same reasons, but I'd heard that, I believe it was a psychologist who came up with the idea, he called it the 21-day no-complaint experiment, where okay. one of those little uh, silicone rubber uh, wristbands, and right. the goal was to go 21 days without complaining, and every time you complain, you had to move it to the other wrist, and you didn't huh. complete it until you went 21 days without complaining. So an interesting little experiment that uh, people could try there to see what kind of effects that has as well. Right. Fascinating. So awesome. I, I like that. That That's a re really interesting concept. Huh. That's cool. Yeah. So awesome. We got some great, great tactics and tips that people can, um, can apply starting right now. Uh, if they want to know more, go to backincontrol.com and check out uh, your further information there. Um, and your book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, available on Amazon right now that people can pick up if they want to dive deeper into this stuff. Any other um, parting words of wisdom that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't ask patients to believe anything we just said at all. It's not about, it's not about believing or disbelieving. It's about connected and engaged thinking. So when you grab a piece of paper, you can write down, this is crazy. And so this is not about positive thinking, mind over matter. It's just about connecting with what is. So I said, look, I'm not even asking to believe anything at all. In fact, be the opposite. So just start the process and just become an observer of your own healing. That's all. And then, again, each person has a completely individual path because everybody, everybody has a different set of variables and a different set of solutions. So the book is just a framework that organizes your thinking in a way that you can find your own solution. And that's the key issue. Yeah, it's interesting how people will come up with all these sorts of justifications for doing the, the health habits or the diets or whatever they're doing. And really, the only thing that matters is results. We're talking about our own health, our friend's health, our family's health. Does it get results? Does it not get results? No, it doesn't get results. Then why are we doing this thing? And from what you've been saying, it sounds like surgery is one of those things that oftentimes does not get results. Well, again, a success rate of a spine fusion for back pain is about 22%. The chance of making you worse with spine surgery for back pain in the presence of chronic pain is about 40 to 60%. So it actually has almost double the chance of making you worse than it does making you better. So, again, this stuff is so simple and risk-free and so effective compared to what we're actually doing to people in medicine. It's really remarkable. And again, I don't claim original credit for any part of this book. I can tell my story. I put the structure together. But every concept in this book has been documented in hundreds of research papers in the mainstream medical literature. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, much of the best information, you know, there's already information out there about the right way to do things. But, you know. Sometimes you need an ambassador, somebody to take all that information and bring it to people and explain it in a way that they can understand so that they are able to make those improvements in their lives. Because, you know, this book is fairly accessible. I'm not, you know, a, I don't have a doctorate. I'm not a 
medical genius by any stretch, but I'm able to understand this. However, if you handed me these stacks of research papers, my head would start spinning. So um, yeah. this, this work is definitely important to, to make this understandable and palatable for the average person. You know, I do think that's one thing that did work is that I'm a surgeon, so I have a surgeon's approach to all of it, <clears throat> whether sleep or stress, whatever, is that as opposed to, you know, sort of just plain symptomatic care, my idea is let's fix it. You know, if it's sleep, let's fix it. So it's a structured approach that's pretty clear, and then my story and my perspective is in there. So I do think that is the, is the contribution that I've been able to make to my own harsh experience is, is to give a structured perspective that is easy to follow, follow and understand. And I also learned that it does take a sequence. You can't just start out with meditation, for instance, even though at the end of the day on stage four, the last stage, the meditation is a wonderful tool. It's just not a good starting point. So those things took a long time for me to figure out with my own personal experience. Absolutely. Yeah, you need uh, that sort of logical approach to this sort of thing it, from the sound of it you know the expressive writing might be like the 100 level course in university terms of this process and right. the full-on meditation is the 400 level course if you jump into the 400 level course right away you're going to flunk out because you're just not prepared for it yeah that's a great analogy i hadn't really thought of it that way no you're exactly right you just got to start at the foundation build the foundation and then start building you know putting the bricks in one at a time Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we're going to have to talk plenty more about all of these things as well as um, how to implement this process, but uh, we can, we can touch base on all those things later. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you joining me, David. It's been great chatting with you and we'll, we'll chat again soon. Uh, hang on the yeah. line because I want to uh, go over a few of those things with you. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on iTunes. You know how when you shop on Amazon, the first thing you look at are a product's reviews? Well, reviews are super important in podcasting too, and we'd really appreciate yours. To check out any book recommendations, tips, and other resources mentioned, go to our website, deskbound.co slash episode 5 to see the full show notes. And while you're there, sign up to get the Deskbound Toolbox, your free audio glossary that'll simplify everything we discuss on here.